Welcome to the podcast of data and analytics in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I am your host, Jason Ten, and thank you for listening. Many of us love the Formula One Motor Racing Championship, and I, for one, would love to test drive it in the future. What makes Formula One such a successful sport have many contributing factors. What we see in front of the screen, such as the fast car crash, drama, driver, and even the technology that go into building the race car, are always exciting. However, very few of us. Have a glimpse of what is happening at the corporate level, making it such a successful organization and the spot in the world. We are in a treat today because we have Max Methau, the senior analytic manager at Formula One, joining us in this podcast episode to share how data and analytics are used in the landscape of sports media and sports analytics. To kick off the interview, I asked Max to share his passion and experience in teaching and writing. When he is not working, not only does he find joy from this activity, but equally he used the opportunity to sharpen his knowledge too. We then talk about Formula One, and Max provided a lot of business context for Formula One and how it is evolving from B to B to B to C and the D to C model. Subsequently, Max explained how data analytics are becoming ever more critical in their B two B businesses because broadcasters and promoters are asking more questions than ever before in order to justify the ROI. Apart from that, Max also shared how he and his team had to create the fans database from scratch when he first started the job at Formula One. While it is not without challenges. The eventual of the fans database has allowed Formula One to start building its B two C business and D two C business model. If you are chief marketing officer in a large corporation or work in the media industry, I would highly recommend listening this episode with these few key takeaway. One, why data analytics is becoming more critical for above the line marketing. Two. Why we can't blindly trust the data and spend all our marketing budget for below-the-line marketing? How to build a customer database with a global perspective and some of the challenges it would come with? And finally, how to create a new B two C market if you are traditionally a B two B business, and why data play such an important role? To make both of them complement each other, there is so much more gold nugget Max has shared, and I'm confident that you will pick up a lot of valuable tips from this episode. If you have any question for Max or myself, make sure you send us an email or message on LinkedIn. Finally, this episode is sponsored by the new program at DDA. It is an analytic leadership mentorship program. For senior manager and executive in the business team who want to develop data-driven business to drive customer experience excellence and a direct impact on the 
revenue. For a small one-off annual fee, you get to book unlimited strategy session for a full year. For more information about this program, please reach out to me or DDA. Last but not least, make sure you click the subscribe button before the interview starts so you will be the first to be informed on the latest episode on how business leaders run a high-performance organization using data analytics. I am your host, Jason Ten, and thank you for listening. Morning, Max, and should I say bonjour so that I can practice my French that I, I learned many, many years ago. Thank you so much for dialing in all the way from London and chat with me and, and share some of your experience with our listener at the Analytics Show podcast. Bonjour and thank you for having me, Jason. <laughs> now, I want to ask you a little bit about your teaching. I see that you teach a lot around the world as a visiting lecturer. Share with us a bit about your teaching experience. I'm intrigued. I love it. I have to admit, it's not always easy because when you think you know something, it's a whole different experience to try and teach it to someone because you have to bring it up to the core, make it very simple. And I think it's Richard Feynman who says something along the lines of, if you want to master something, teach it. And it's incredibly difficult. But once, once you get into it, I'm loving it. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I don't do it that often because obviously time conscious. It's not like a, a job for me. It's very much like a hobby, but I really enjoy it. That's interesting. How did you get into that? I mean, do you just get the invitation? How, how does it work? Like for those who don't know. I think at first, having worked, so before joining F1, I was in football. So at Manchester City, which is obviously a very good brand name, and F1 as well. So I got contacted by some of my former professors. I say, hey, would you mind come in, just talk about what you do? I'm sure that the students are going to like it. And that was just, then the ball got rolling, and then I ended up meeting people. And I don't do that many different universities, to be honest, but that's how it started. And then it's like, oh, actually, we like what you did. Can you do a bit more next year? And then it's going on and on. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you decided to retire in the commercial world, I'm sure that academic world is waiting. Now, on that note, I know you write quite a bit on your website and few other platforms. Tricky question for you. What would be your favorite copy so far? <laughs> Ooh, actually, I wish I could be writing more. I wrote a copy that I published just before the pandemic, and it was about the direct-to-consumer revolution. And I'm quite happy because I wrote it before everyone was talking about it because obviously pandemic, brick and mortar stores closed. So everything going more digital and direct to consumer for brands. And it makes it all the way more true. So I'd say that piece, but it's been a year and a half now. I feel bad. I need to get back into it and find the time. But same for me, it's the same as the teaching is sometimes you think you have a point of view you think you have a theory, but when you put it down on paper, it doesn't look as strong, it doesn't look as good, so you have to work on it. So it's, it's very exciting. And I think having to summarize it into X numbers of words, it also really means that you have to sharpen the way that you write, making sure that you can convey all the key without mumbling like I do right now. <laughs> Exactly. And I feel for these Amazon executives, if the rumors are true that they never do PowerPoints, they just do written summaries. It's a whole different job. 
<laughs> I tell you what, one of my tests for me to recruit for certain role, especially the marketing, the copywriting, those sort of role, is I usually give them three questions and I want them to write me a report that is no more than three pages. That is a way for me to help me filtering to have the right people. And you will be surprised and amazed what sort of thing they would be written in there. <laughs> I might take a page from your book. I like that. I might do a bit more next time I have to recruit someone. Yeah, I think the, the good thing that I, I love about it is that it helps me to filter down so I don't have to read 100 resumes. I don't have to interview 50 people, but then it allows me to get a glimpse of the way they think and also how precise and concise they write, as well as how much they actually understand your question. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> now let's get into this. Formula One. I know everyone knows about Formula One. No introduction required, technically, but that might be something that we may not know. Share with us a bit about Formula One then. So for those who may not know how Formula One works, we are the commercial entity monetizing the rights of the sport. And we have three main revenue channels. First one being the TV rights. So we sell the ability for a broadcaster in any given country to broadcast the F1 races. Second being the promoters. So we sell the right for organizers to organize the Grand Prix on our behalf. Usually it's a country, a city, a private entity that owns a track, that has access to a track, obviously. And in exchange, they get to monetize the ticketing and, and everything around this. And the third one is sponsorship. Rolex, Purity, Heineken, Aramco, and others. And these are present around the track. And that's how if one generates revenue and a couple of other things as well. But that's about $2 billion revenue. And we share part of the profit with the teams. And that's how it works. So everyone has a different sports system. In Europe, you have the relegation promotion. In the US, you have a closed league system. F1 is in a league of its own for two different reasons. One, because it's very truly international. We operate in 22, 23, depending on the year, countries. And so it means that we are prime time at least once everywhere in the world, in Australia too. And the second thing being that we also are a sports all in itself. Like if you are the NBA, you don't represent the whole basketball. If you're the Champions League, if you're a football club, you don't represent the whole football. But we are a whole sport in itself. We are a league and a sports all together, meaning that there are some rule changes which belong to the federation. But it's like there's lots of changes happening in F1 and it's very much in very specific and so much different than every other sport in the world. I think the last point that you just touched on sort of like reminded me of my limited understanding of the sport and also the way that they make money. I think F1, from, from what I understand, is one of the sport and the organization that is really doing extremely well from the financial perspective for many, many reasons. And what, what I mean by that is if we compare to Tour de France, I like cycling, but the problem with Tour de France is I think they struggle to be able to make enough money and subsequently to be able to reward the cyclists, whereas F1, what it got me, I suppose where equally I'm trying to say that when you were saying that F1 itself is represent the whole sport, perhaps it gives you guys more opportunity to be able to define 
how the thing should be run. Do you think that is a really important contributing factor compared to other sports? It is a massive factor. And funny enough, it makes F1 very close to esports, even though it might be surprising for people, in the fact that the environment keeps on changing. So in esports, for those who may not be aware, the game developers keep on adjusting the game every few weeks, every few months, so that the game is balanced between characters or between the rules within the game. And that's very much what F1 is happening, but it's more on a season-per-season basis. So it's like the rules changing. It's not much to balance out, but it's just to keep having the sport evolving. We are the best hybrid engine in the world, and we keep getting more sustainable. So there are lots of different reasons why we do this. We're trying to get the cars to pull each other better, but the sports keeps on changing, which just reduced to be the cards all over for all the players. It's as if you change the offside rule in football every other year. That would never happen. But that obviously keeps the sport entertaining. There's always some news around it. There's always who's going to win this year, how teams are evolving based on the, the rule changes. And that's actually very similar to what's happening in esports, the meta environment. And I think, yeah, that keeps you entertaining for sure year over year. Fascinating. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your role as the senior analytic manager at F1. What are your key responsibility and your work philosophy over here as a senior analytic manager? So usually when I tell people that I work in F1, first they ask me if I drive a car because I'm not <laughs> <active>. <laughs> Okay. I thought they would ask you if, if you drive a fast car. Exactly. And then, and then the second question I give is, set foot in, in a car is like, no, these would cost millions. They would never let me do that. And then I, I start working data and they, they presume I work for a team or I work on the, the sports side. So making the cars go faster. And then I have to explain again, no, actually, that's not what I do. I work for the league, but on the business side. So my job within F1 is trying to help the whole organization through all our different departments make better decisions with the help of data. And so that means trying to help, for instance, the marketing team getting better open rate on the email, getting more fans into a database, helping the TV rights team on potentially help on negotiation that's so, but more so valuing the rights and the numbers behind it and summer and sponsorship. There's lots of different topics within the organization where data is key and data can help a lot in decision making. And that's very much my role. Right. And in this role, my understanding is it also split into B2B and B2C as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. So as I said earlier, F1 main river channels are B2B, broadcasters, promoters, and sponsors. But some of the things that we created and that's more recent is the whole direct-to-consumer, direct-to-fan part. And that's where the whole fan database plays a huge role. And we started creating our own OTT. So again, for those who might not know what that is, it's very similar to Netflix in the sense that we sell the ability for fans to watch F1 directly through their own devices on a monthly or annual basis. So that's a reoccurring business. And that's very much changing with businesses for a B2B business. So there are lots of data, lots of things behind this. And we're getting bigger into that direct-to-consumer, and that's across all sports, it's not just F1. And that involves a lot of data. And as you're usually the B2C world, it involves much more data and the sample sizes are much bigger than the B2B. If you have 200 broadcasters, you're not going to have millions of data points. If you have 20-ish partners, you're not going to have millions of data points. If you have a fan base with millions of fans, that's a whole different topic. 
Absolutely. Before we continue in this direction, I want to go back to the question that how did you actually get started and involved with F1? I think it must be a question that many, many fans who would want to know saying that, hey, I'm good with data. Can I get a job like Max working at F1? <laughs> to be frank, I got incredibly lucky. So I was working in football and someone I knew from before literally sent me a LinkedIn message saying, hey, I joined F1 recently. We might need people like you. I can put you in touch with the right person. Would you be available for a call? And I said, yes. And that's how the story started because that was literally around the time where we had a new ownership. So the takeover by Liberty Media. So they were recruiting new range of people and they had obviously that ambition around direct consumer and they needed people to get it started. So my answer is not going to please people because I got incredibly lucky. And I think if I were to go back in time and do it a hundred times, I'm not sure I would have it more than once. So yeah, incredibly lucky. Today, nowadays, I'd say they're going to have to wait for me to leave <laughs> to get my job. But I get told a lot that they would kill to get my job. So sometimes I should have been secure. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that also highlighted the importance of maintaining a good network, i.e. maintaining a network and also having the right people in the circle who believe in you, who back you up and who reach out to you when the right opportunity comes. And that involves not only building the relationship, but also maintaining the reputation that you are good at what you are doing. What would be your advice for the younger data scientists or data professional to be able to do the balance of that while getting the job done at the office <laughs> and watching F1? <laughs> yes. So I would have different advice. I think the one thing would be you have to get good at your job and don't try to chase a job in the industry you love too soon, too fast. So let's say that works for sport, that works for luxury or whichever passion industry. If you try to get too fast and you don't land the right job, it's not going to work for you. And also the other way, meaning that if you don't have enough experience and skills and in the job you're applying for, you're not going to get it. Because these industries are very small and they recruit for people that are going to tell them what to do. So if you try and make the move too soon, you're not going to be able to land a job. And there are lots of people which outside of the data world that just want to work so badly in sports that they apply to any given job they see. And that's the recipe for disaster because that means they're not specialized in anything. So I'd say for the young people out there, get very good at your job, learn transferable skills, learn how to do a churn model, how to do clustering segmentation, all these things, because these are super easily transferable to the sports environment and the sports organization and prove them that from the day you join, you're going to create value. The second advice would be to build a network and not in the sense of sending LinkedIn messages and ask for, can I pass, can you pass on my CV to HR, but more so asking questions, understanding what's behind the role. And that's something I did when I was younger and I had the chance of having lots of people accepting to have phone calls with me to answer my questions. And one of the things I was always surprised, and now I feel it today in my job, was I was asking them, what's the most challenging part of your job? And I was expecting to have answers around data and, and like very technical things. And actually told me, no, the data side is super easy. 
the people side is the super challenging thing. At that time, I was incredibly surprised, like, what? And now I live it today. So asking for budget, negotiating budget, headcount, even convincing key stakeholders who may or may not be data savvy. And this is the day-to-day job. And this is what obviously I really like as well. But at the time, I was super surprised. So my advice would be reach out to these people that have jobs they dream of doing, understand what are the challenges, what qualities they, they're looking for when they recruit, and try to build up a profile like this. Exactly. So spot on, and especially about the people side. I was just talking to my nephew over the phone. She is studying the, at the LSE, London School of Economy. And she was asking me, first year in, she was asking me for advice. And obviously, she would ask me about all the technicality, all the technical stuff. And by the end of the call, when she asked me, what is the thing that you would want to tell me, but you haven't told me, <laughs> or I should be knowing? And I say, learn how to be good with people. That is the most, most important thing. <laughs> and it is the most difficult as well, I'd say, because exactly. I'm not sure how you can learn that. <laughs> I know, because in data or computing or analytic, one is one, zero is zero. You don't see something in the middle, whereas with people, that is entirely different range for you to interpret. <laughs> yeah, it is a very interesting science, I'd say. Is that the reason why you pick up that, a read that you were pick up a short course? I think the behavioral change and something about psychology, is that part of the reason you pick up that or you feel like it is necessary to be used in understanding the customer as you are doing the data analytics for the fans and fans database, which we will come back to that, but I'm just curious that the reason... It is a topic that I find extremely interesting, and I think it pairs up super well with the data skills, i.e., for instance, the fact that people are more afraid of losing something than they're willing to win something. So if you're trying to pitch your data project, instead of saying, by doing this, we're going to win X amount of money, you frame it the other way, which is, if we keep on not doing this, we're going to keep losing X amount of money and the latter is going to be way more efficient. And that's behavioral cognitive science. And the same way as well is we all know that nothing is definitive when you make predictions and you have a confidence interval and you're not really sure. But the fact that, for instance, you put in a presentation is going to be, when you do a prediction, 2.56X percent or percent thing, having two digits behind the comma creates the illusion of confidence. And you may explain it in the fact that, well, we're not sure we have confidence interval, but seeing these numbers on the screen on the presentation, you're going to make them believe in you better. And that's so confusing because you know that's not exactly true. It's a confidence interval. It's never going to reach these number of digits, numbers behind the, digits behind the comma. But these are the interesting parts of the behavioral science that I think pairs up very well with data science. And uh, yeah, that's a topic that I find increasingly interesting. Now, on that note, I want to develop that a little bit further and deeper. I always say to my team that data, there are two things that is always affecting the data behavior. Number one is the system behavior, i.e. whoever designed the system, whoever built the system, make the data behave in such a way. The second thing is the human behavior. 
the guys sitting in front of the computer that that particular person he would do the shortcut he would find his his or her way to do things easier and that is the human way of behave that is driving the behavior of the data given that we were just talking about the behavior of what you learn in that course is that a way that we can teach to our team to better understand the impact of the human impacting the data behavior I'm not sure if I'm making sense. <laughs> I feel no, like... <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. I think you're absolutely right. And that's why, for me, a data team is trying to find insights and, and create actionable recommendations. It has to be hand in hand with whoever is the system team or product team, whatever the name is of that team, that makes the website changes, that makes the tool changes or whatever you're trying to change. That is obviously the front end of where you're collecting the data is absolutely key. And we see that every single day for us because we have lots of different touch points where we collect data, the website, the app, the our OTT platform as well. And sometimes you don't you have to make sure that you have that front end in mind because you might see something in the data, but then you realize that actually the front end makes this behavior happen. And it's not it's not a it's not a problem, it's just the way it is. The problem, if there is one, might be in the system, but don't blame the data or don't and that's actually very difficult because sometimes these people work with different timelines and you're trying to implement a change and it takes six to twelve months because they have a backlog of things they need to solve. And personally, sometimes it's been frustrating in the past with previous companies, but yeah, it's always difficult. And I'm not sure how to best optimize this in companies and how to have teams work hand in hand, but yeah, it's always a challenge, I'd say. Yeah, I always encourage that the team to either speak with the user or even sit in front of the user and see how they what they do in front of their screen to understand how, why things are behaving in such a way. And they will understand why the data is behaving that way. Quickly, use the acronym OTT. I just want to quickly put it out there for the listener. And I believe OTT stands for over the top. So I... Say, for example, in Australia, we have that in the OL, <laughs> we have the Foxtel, like i.e. that the box that do the pay TV or, or the free TV. Is that correct? OTT? OTT means above the top. In terms of what it means, it means it's when someone who has rights, so a rights holder, so F1 is a rights holder because you have the rights to your product, the quality and the rates, for instance, the NBA, whichever sports, is when instead of going to the traditional broadcaster to broadcast the images on linear TV on the product, which in the UK might be the BBC, for instance, going to the BBC who's then going to broadcast it to some other people, they go over the top. So literally they go over the broadcaster to go direct to consumer. That's very much direct to consumer. So it's when you have a, a B2B2C business and when the first business, the first B, goes directly to the consumer and they bypass the broadcasters to go directly. That's what it means. So instead of selling the rights to the BBC, or maybe in conjunction with selling the rights to the BBC, you're going to offer an OTT product, which means you go directly to the fans, which also means, for instance, we get the data. So I'm not sure which pay TV broadcasters you might have in Australia, but when someone sells the rights to pay TV broadcasters, they have their own subscribers and they watch on TV. But the us, F1, which... Any type of sports, actually, it's not just F1. They never get the data who exactly it's watching because that obviously GDPR is a thing, but that 
property of the broadcaster. But by going direct to the consumer, you start collecting this information and you can build a connection with the fans. There are lots of different reasons why OTT is a thing. That's what it means, going direct to consumer. Some people sometimes misrepresent it for a digital broadcaster. I'm not sure if it's present in Australia, but Dazone, for instance, is a digital broadcaster where they pay rights and they broadcast on the digital platforms. But this is not technically an OTT system because it doesn't go to the top. It's just a broadcaster, a different type of broadcaster. Can you give me an example, say maybe a company name that is the OTT? Because I'm still trying to get it around my head. So for instance, the NBA in the US, they sell the TV rights to lots of different TV broadcasters, but for the out-of-market, so when it's in Europe, for instance, they have the NBA League Pass. So I can pay directly the NBA to access the games, and I don't need to go through a broadcaster. The NFL does the same with the NFL Game Pass. I think MLB is called MLB TV. Like these are the ways they monetize their rights, usually outside of their own market, directly to consumers. And often as a consumer, for me to assess the content, I basically assess the the apps and that app can be installed on my TV, can be installed on my mobile, or maybe I go directly to the website and I log in. Would that be correct? That's exactly that. Yeah. It's multi-platforms. You usually have Apple TV, Roku, Fire Stick, all these different platforms. Right? Wonderful. Now this is becoming more of like the B2C and clearly we are collecting more data. But before we move on to B2C, because I know that I have prepared a lot of questions to ask in the B2C, so I'm going to ask them in a single go. Let's come back to B2B just a little bit. You talk about the TV rights, the sponsorship with the brands and the partnership with the country. Given that that is not enough, I mean, we know that those are the traditional media in a sense that it is very difficult to collect the data. I'm still curious to know, can data and analytics play a role? in that sort of world, in the old world, or that sort of world and area? It's actually playing a, an increasing role because they ask for more and more questions. The holy grail is what is the ROI? And obviously, we all know that for any given company, any given project, it's never easy to measure in ways and, and methods you can try and approach some kind of ROI. And we're getting more and more into this. And I think it's just the the evolution of the market and sponsorship. And in sponsorship, I guess, maybe 50 years ago, it was a good handshake and a big logo somewhere, and that was it. I think nowadays, they're getting much, much smarter in the marketing mix and how they spend the budget. And sponsorship is competing with lots of different ways to do marketing. And they have to show ROI, and there's lots of metrics and lots of smart people behind this to make it work. So I think it's increasing for any given sports organizations to show these numbers, to show these ROI and help the calculation on this. So yes, it's getting bigger and bigger. And everyone has a different reason as well. So some partners, and that's beyond sports as well, beyond F1, sorry. Some partners enter a deal because maybe they're not very well known because they want to enter a new market because they're launching a new product. Some maybe because they have a competitor who's been doing this for a while and they're trying to get the market share back. Some of them is, opportunity cost. I mean, there are lots of different reasons that all these people might be willing to track different things. If you're a B2B company or a B2C, you're going to look at different metrics. If you're online only or if you have lots of brick and mortar stores, you're also going to look at what you measure differently. And so that makes it very interesting on our side because, for instance, the purity 
it's a B2B2C business. No one buys the tires directly from Purity, but they're trying to work the brand name out there and making, just taking random examples, AWS is different business as well. And what they're looking at is different. So every partner looks at it in different ways, but absolutely all of them are asking way more questions than 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. And I don't expect it to slow down. So it's becoming bigger and bigger for sure. And as you guys are equally doing the OTT and then moving the into the, the direct-to-consumer model, it makes sense that they are going to ask more questions because you have got so much data in, in terms of the D2C model and the OTT model. My question then is, how is it competing with your own B2B businesses then? So two points. First off, the D2C is helping the B2B in the sense that you have more data points, you have more, more, yeah, more data to argue your points and how it's going to benefit the B2B partner. Secondly, and specifically around OTT, F1 TV and TV, it's actually very complementary. F1 TV is never available in all markets just because of the way the contracts are and the way to roll it out. It's not available everywhere, but we're quite in a good amount of markets. And actually, our TV rights teams, it's not me, but they do an incredible job making it happen and so that we can also sell their consumer well-being in TV deals. And I think they realize the value that actually the people that might be interested in our OTT, first off, it's not the casual fans. Paying us directly to access F1 wherever you are on your phone anytime so that you can watch it wherever you are. I mean, I'd be very happy if casual fans do it, but by definition, it's more of a avid fan type of product. And so they realize that actually it's very complementary to what they're doing on TV because our product offers a bit more personalization. You can watch like the onboard cameras and you can select different type of feeds. And I think people enjoy that. And they also have all the VOD elements with like we're doing more and more shoulder content, documentaries, pre-race shows, post-race or shows and so on and so forth. But there really is actually a good complementary product in most markets. So it's not competing that much. I think that that's the beauty of it. And I think why it works so well for F1, where it may or may not work for other sports, is the fact that we're truly international. Again, first, because we're in different places around the world, but also because our fan base is very international. And that'd be more difficult, for instance, if you're the Premier League. First off, you know your games are in a very given timing. And so there are markets that the games will always be around like 4 a.m., 3 a.m., I actually don't know which one. But you cannot monetize exactly everything altogether. When F1, even though no one has the, every race prime time, because that's also the difficulty if you're a really hardcore fan, you're trying to watch them all, you have to wake up early sometimes. But the flip side is that at least a couple of races are always live somewhere around the world for everyone to see. So you always have the pros and cons. But I think it's good for us in terms of OTT because that means you can monetize in lots of different markets where we have lots of different fans for various different reasons sometimes like for instance we had a, a massive spike in poland when we had kubica coming back in f1 and that so he's a polish driver obviously and he raced i think for a year or two and the numbers were through the roof given the relative side of the market and then then he's not racing anymore and the and numbers go back to normal so we see lots of changes that's what makes f1 so interesting i wonder if prop into my mind, I wonder if that is something that the TV network should take a look and learn how to use that as a case study and use that as an example to fix their revenue problem because TV obviously is losing the audience and hence the advertising dollars. 
to the internet and the auto internet giant. Maybe what you guys are doing at F1 with that example, how the OTT, how the data point can actually use the complement from the traditional media. I, I, do you think that is possible? I think it depends. There are two different types of TV broadcasters. You have the free-to-air and the pay-to-TV. So the free-to-air is you don't have to pay to watch it. So usually the business revolves around setting advertising and having a good amount of audience so that you can sell advertising. And the pay-TV obviously is more of a subscription fee. So it's not, so you usually have less people watching, but the revenue generation is very much different. It's less relying on ads. We actually do a lot of, of deals in terms of F1 TV where we bring F1 TV to the market in conjunction with the TV broadcasters. So that's the type of things that we do too. So I think that's exactly what it's suggesting. That's exactly what we're doing. And in hand with a with a broadcaster in some markets. And I think the difficulty for both of them is that the free-to-air, and that's my personal opinion, is that what makes people watch TV live is either news or sports. Everything else can be VOD and with the likes of Amazon Prime, Netflix, and all the other guys, there's an increased amount of competition. So I don't know what would be the answer for them, for both of them, but I think so far the pay TV broadcasters are doing well. At least, again, the dynamic is very different in all markets. But I think it's the free-to-wear has been a bit struggling lately. But I wouldn't know how. I'm sure they will have plans, so I wouldn't know how to do their job. Better than they are. <laughs> I'm sure they have plans as well. I think that is beyond the discussion of this podcast. I was just curious to know. So I hope you don't mind putting you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Now, coming back to this whole B2B, I want to talk a little bit about the B2C. The internet obviously play a big role for F1 or for many of these companies to be able to go B2C and D2C. And obviously, you're collecting more data. Now, my research is you have helped creating the very first fan database as part of the D2C initiative. Tell us a little bit more about this fan database uh, and what does it do? That was a bit scary. So when I joined F1 back in 2017, and actually when I had these calls and to kind of get a job, and I was telling them what was my vision and what I wanted to do. And, and the guy who recruited me, who, who was my boss at the time, told me, Max, hang on, we have nothing. I was like, what? You must have some things I know. We have nothing. And I did, I'm not going to lie. I didn't believe it. I didn't believe what he was saying. But when I joined, I realized that we actually, we were collecting data for some of our suppliers, but it was never been put together into one single place for us to use. And it was literally a pain. So it was great because it was a blank sheet of paper. So you can create the systems from scratch, be GDPR compliant and everything, all the likes. But it was also very scary because we're, From the outside, everyone thinks that F1 was perfect because it's a great sport and they have the halo effect. And we had no fan database, so we had to create one. And obviously, that was a good exercise. But yes, yeah, so we started from scratch, and thank God we are way along, along the way on the journey today. But yeah, it's been quite, quite a challenging start. And I didn't believe what, the, what he was telling me when he said there's nothing. So yeah, we had to build the whole function. And so I'm managing more data analytics side, but I have a counterpart on the more research, qualitative, quantitative, and even on that side. There's barely any study being done as to who are the offense fans, where they come from, what do they want? And all the basics that you think you should know, but that wasn't there. So, or maybe it wasn't, he got lost somewhere. 
but we didn't, we didn't have it. So we had to start from scratch. I think it was both scary and also a good opportunity. Was that a surprise whenever you tell someone about this story that we never have a fan database up until 2016? Uh, they don't believe me. <laughs> I wouldn't believe you either. <laughs> no, exactly. And I, when I've been told, I wasn't believing either. So I don't blame you. So thinking of this F1 database, it obviously played a role for you guys to understand about the demographic of the fans, how the behavior of watching the, the F1, perhaps through the OTT and uh, some of the apps. How do you guys, to what extent you try to understand the fan and do you use any external data source to help you to build a complementary view in order to further understanding the fans? We don't use any third-party data source and mainly because of, of GDPR, but we do a lot of things to understand them better. One of the initiatives is called F1 Fan Voice. So it's kind of dedicated platform for our most avid fans, even though obviously there are some casual fans, but most avid fans. I don't have the latest number, but it's around 150,000 fans out there. That just, it's like a community. So it's like, for those who know it, it's very much like Reddit, but for F1. So it's kind of a subreddit but that we manage, but Reddit is still massive and it's much bigger anyway. But you have a community, they talk to each other, and we, we ask them a lot of questions. And the premise is, how can we make this sport better? But we ask them a lot of different questions, sometimes more commercial, sometimes around, did they enjoy the race? What would they change? And so they were involved, for instance, in some of the rule changes where we added the, an extra point for the fastest lap. And so that's something that we, we quizzed them on back in the day a couple of years ago. They really enjoyed it. So, okay, looks like the fans like it, so we can go for it. And we try and ask them a lot of questions. And that's part of the decision process. It doesn't mean that we're always going to follow what they think, but usually they're quite spot on and, and they have very good point of view. So I don't think we ever disagree with them. But that's one of the things that we do to get a bit deeper in the understanding as well. But on, on the data side, we have lots of different touch points. The biggest one being, obviously, our, our web and app. But for instance, one of the things that is working incredibly well is our fantasy. So it's free to play. It's, it's a game. And like based on the performance of the drivers on the track, you score points and you compete with your friends and so on and so forth. And that's been performing very, very well. And even when I was in football before, it was also something performing very well with the permanent fantasy. I mean, maybe Australia, I guess, maybe similar to, to the US, you guys are aware all of our fantasy for a long time. I think it came into Europe not that long ago. And so, yeah, it's, it's working very well. It's one of the very good, good way to, to get the fans in and to get them enjoying the race. And sometimes and if you play fantasy yourself, you get, you support the driver. You were not, you, did, you never thought you would support just because he's in your team. And so you want them to succeed. So I think it builds some bonds as well. And that creates some fandom. They get more knowledge as well because they want to understand how it works and how can their predict is going to win. And they get into the intricacies. And one of what we found as well is knowledge drives fandom. The more you know about the sport, the more likely you are to like it. It's not 100%, but it's... And so F1 also being quite technical and understanding, even though the core principle is simple, whoever crosses the line first wins. But when you get a bit into it, understand how the car works and how what the strategies are and so on and so forth, it involves a lot of knowledge. So that's one of the one of the good things to bring fans along the fandom journey to get more engaged and understand and know the, the sports better. So that's one of the good things we do as well. Now the fan database and F1, like you say, is 
a global business and also a global initiative. And it's also global in a sense that it's a true global that you don't, I suspect you don't try to say this is fans database for country A, B, C, and D, as opposed to some of the, say, maybe the, the businesses they run, they, they do their regional database. I'm curious to know what were the challenges that you faced then when you are have to look at the building this sort of data initiative from the global perspective? I'd say there are two challenges. One would be, and I think that's the one you're hinting on, is the languages. Right now, we communicate mostly in English. We have OTT in native language, but unless I'm mistaken, we don't have the website in other languages. And that makes us obviously reaching a key global audience, English being one of the most spoken languages in the world. But obviously that might limit us in some countries in terms of web traffic and app usage. And that's perfectly understandable. When and how we will overtake this, I don't know. I have to admit, I'm not sure because running the number is not that easy. I don't think there are many organizations that run website 150 languages. Second point, I think, and one of the big challenges we have is we actually have a lot of data of people that are fans from the very casual to the hardcore fans. But we have almost nothing. This is incredibly difficult for us to collect information and knowledge and data on people that are not fans and what can help us to make them become fans. And that's very, very difficult for us because you have to go through more traditional research surveys and so forth. But from a data perspective, I'd love to find and do analysis. How can I, what can we do to get more fans in and to get people to enter the journey? And that's incredibly difficult. And that's the big challenge. And I think it'd be across the board for any organization. How do I know the one that are not customers to make them customer? And that's one of the big challenges we have because we always, Aim for more. And I'd say we have, as of today, a very good, very good understanding of the fans in their very different intricacies and, and, and lenses you can look at this. But the, the casuals is also slightly harder. We do have some, but the non-fans, it's very difficult for us. And yeah, I, we have to get better at this. And we have we're trying to implement strategies, but that's difficult because they're not in the database. The database can only help what you have data for. And that's one of the things that I think we're trying to get better at. I can imagine. I think languages, all of those things are already making it difficult, let alone if we were having to try to understand the customer behavior in some of those regions. Ever consider building the local team in each of those countries, almost like I call it the Uber model. <laughs> Uber model is effectively they drop a a city manager in one of the city across the world, 400 cities across the world, they have to fit the intelligence back. Maybe that's the way to approach to better understand. Trust me, I'd love to piece that to my top management. I can get like a data team in every country in the world. I'd love to do that. <laughs> I will try to find a way to get him to listen to this part. <laughs> the idea that, that the importance of that. And clearly it is working because Ubo has shown us how well it is working. Now, talking about this, all of these data, what do you think is the key lesson for you? I, for my research, I read that you, you are more data-informed rather than data-driven. I'm curious to know your philosophy and how this philosophy is applied in building your fan database. Yes, I think data-driven can be dangerous in the fact that 
he creates the false sense of security that the data is right and you just have to follow it because it's going to drive you to the good answer. When, in my opinion, every data analysis is skewed by the person who did it, it doesn't mean it's false, but it's, there's a subjective input as to how to look at the data and how to create a recommendation. And I've never seen the data set speaking for itself. And so I think that's, for me, the key, the key point. There might be mistakes in data, there might be mistakes in the analysis, and, and the data may not be representative or there are lots of different ways to look at this. That's why I believe data inform is better because at the end of the day, I wish I could be the one making the decisions, but I'm not. So my job is to bring the key pieces of information that I think are going to help decision-making in one way or another. And it doesn't mean the top management has to follow my recommendation because they may have reasons to believe otherwise. But I think that's very important in decision-making. And one good example of this is one of the things that's been the most successful for F1 in the past few years has been Netflix Draft to Survive. As, I, as much as I'd love to take credit for it, I had nothing to do with it. And we had absolutely no data to back it up. And it was the vision of our top managers, Sean Bratches and Ian Holmes, that were the ones to push the project forward and to make it happen because they had the vision. And I don't even think they ask any question anytime during the process about how much you can make, how many viewers you're going to get. They just believed in it. And I, I wish I could have found some data to help them make the decision, but I didn't. And that was an incredible decision that has been very positive since it was created. And I think that's what I mean as well is the full sense of security that the data is going to lead you and you just follow the data, I think is difficult. And even the more specific case of marketing, I think there's a tendency these days that because anything below the lines of digital, for instance, is you can track it, you can find an ROI, may not be perfect, but you can find numbers. People, they stop doing the other things, they stop doing TV ads, radio, all the likes in above the line because it's way more difficult to track and it doesn't mean it doesn't work. And I think it was one of the famous quote, not sure if it was Henry Ford or one of the big big conglomerate guy back in the days that said, I know that 50% 50 of my marketing budget is working. I just don't know which one, which 50%. And I think that's the whole idea. So the idea for me of being data-driven can lead to some negative effects. But if you're being data-driven, I guess, in the right way, for me, it means the same as being data-informed. But that's for me what it means. Because that funny thing is, in the media, in the press, we only hear about all the good stories, all the data-driven projects that work. But for, I guess, one work, one that works, that you have maybe three, four, maybe even more that didn't work, and for lots of different reasons. So that's why I think it's good to be humble with data as well. Data is not going to solve all our problems. I want to highlight the example that you just used in the marketing world, below the line versus the above the line, because I can resonate it so much. Well, as much as I'm not really from the marketing world or the advertising world, but if we were to apply the human behavior in this case, is that if I'm the manager and I have two guys working for me, one is responsible for the below the line, doing the Facebook, Google, <laughs> Instagram, all those of marketing activity. And then I have, not, on, on the other hand, I have another guy who is doing the TV, radio, advertising. Now, clearly one of them has so much more data to tell me whereby he can literally tell me how many sales he has converted. But the other guy, he can't. It's so important to put it into the perspective that 
what the other guy is doing, as much as it's not trackable to the extent of below the line can, the above the line has contributed to the brand awareness and the branding and the positioning. And subsequently, people are more wanting to click on the ad that the other guy is running. So I can't help to feel sorry the people who are doing above the line, not necessarily because they are not doing a good job. Of course, there are challenges in both sides of the world. But I think it's so important to put that into the perspective that we cannot simply blindly saying that this thing is working because this thing is able to tell me exactly the conversion rate. I could not agree more. And I think that's why we need some data people out there that, that know the difference as well. They're not like just following the data and what they can track and taking it as like face value and like the truth. Thank you for highlighting that and that opportunity to share that thought. And hopefully more people are across of that. And we talk a little bit about, we have talked a little bit about the B2B and the B2C vendor base. Share with us one or two of the use cases of the advanced analytic or the emerging technology in the spot business analytics, something that is out of this world that people will be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> that is amazing. I hope I'm not going to disappoint. I would say first off, just to manage expectations, I don't believe the sports industry to be extremely mature and extremely innovative in this world. Just because data and business has been quite a slow journey and a more of a recent one. But I'm still going to try and answer the question. On the B2C, I wouldn't say there's anything that's like crazy different that any other company might do. Our sales, we do clustering, segmentation, cross-sell, upsell, trend prediction. Obviously, always trying to get into the prescriptive analytics, which is not as easy as it might sound. But that's the idea. We're, that's the goal we're trying to reach. On the B2B side, I think we're doing quite a good project around computer vision, analyzing logos on screens. So that's one that we actually don't do ourselves just because it's easier to go to someone who is better than us. And I'm not sure we'd have the skills and Tony to do all that deep learning work. But they're doing a good job for us to try and understand better where the exposure comes from around the track because they have lots of different tracks uh, with lots of different specificities in order for us to better optimize our track side layout. And it's quite difficult because F1 is kind of the fast sport. So the cameras move and the cars move and everything moves. It's not like as static as like a football game, for instance. So I think we're doing quite a good job on this. But yeah. The logo placement analysis is quite interesting because I think to some extent, perhaps that would help the marketing guys who do the above the line marketing. I wonder if that whole data would be feedback to the cameraman to say, hey, we need to change the way and the angle of how we are shooting the entire race so that we can get a little bit more eyeball for some of those logos because they pay to advertise, right? They pay to get the eyeball, right? And we need to be able to justify that. To some extent. So actually, I'm talking about another project that's doing exactly what you're saying but in a different way. We're doing a biometrics study where we have a, a set of people that have like devices measuring their level of sweat and, and their level of excitement while they watch the F1 race. And we use this data and this information as a feedback loop for both our motorsport team, whose the main goal is trying to answer the question, how do we make the races more entertaining? 
which is not an easy an easy thing to do. So they're trying to understand what people think is exciting, and rather rather than trying to apply their own layer of perception. And then they use they do lots of analysis and they cross this with the car data. But we also use this from a TV prediction perspective, how people behave in terms of so it's a it's a passive test. Is they don't say they like it. It's just the system says they like because the excitement, the sweat level, and everything. So how people enjoy the replays, for instance, and some of the things I think we've seen, if I don't quote the, the study wrong, is we found out that if you put the exact same angle as the people have seen, just as a replay, it's less enjoyable than if you do a replay with a different angle. It might sound obvious, but it wasn't that obvious. So we just, all these little things that we also realized that Actually, we can measure the difference in excitement. I think that's what's very interesting. We realized that when we go on board, usually it's because there's a car in front of the car behind, depending on which camera you're looking at. But we realized that actually on the onboard camera, if he was, if the cars were getting closer, it was way more exciting. And actually the excitement level was going way down when the cars was pulling away because it looks like, oh, there's not going to be anything interesting here. And again, it looks obvious with all these little things. We adjusted, I think, some of our introduction, whatever video and session based on the feedback on this. So we use this as a feedback for a production team to try and see this is what people find exciting. Let's try and do more of this. But obviously on their hand, it's it's insane job. I mean, they have like 20 different cameras. They have to choose on the go, on the second, which camera to put on. I mean, it's an incredible job. But yeah, we're doing a lot of this to try and help the broadcasting team I guess it's less of the cameraman, the more the people that choose which cameras is active on screen each time. But yeah, it's not an easy job, but we're doing, try, trying to do a lot of this as well. That is a good point. I think that you just raised is that it's live TV and you can't do the post-production whereby we can have this angle or that angle because it's more exciting. That is really a good point. So the director would have to do a really good job and the experience of to be able to make a quick decision. That's amazing. I take it for granted because we've been doing this forever. But trust me, the, the work they do behind the scenes is insane. <laughs> I love it. Now, my final question about this whole sports analytic for you is, what are the key lessons that you think other businesses or you can share that they can use and apply in their own industry in terms of data and analytics? It might be very generic but i believe that it's very important to try and focus on problems to solve depending in which organization you work you might have a lot of people knocking on your door and asking for lots of different solutions but if you skip the step where you ask them what problem am i trying to answer here you might end up wasting your time a lot and doing lots of things that are gonna not gonna be used in the way you expected them to be and doing the problem framing for me is one of the key part of the job and sometimes you forget it and it's okay, but it's for me very key because the difference between what people come up with, with this is what I need and what they end up getting after having the discussion and understanding their needs and doing some MVPs or whatever, depending on how executive project it is, it's gigantic. And sometimes they come with something that they think is easy, which you know is going to be incredibly difficult. And when you talk to them, you realize actually there is another way that's way simpler that they, they don't, they're not going to see the difference, but for you, it's going to make a big one. So don't take everything for granted. And, and coming back to what we said earlier, communicate. Imagine key stakeholders, massive part of the job. 
and creating the trust, especially, and not not using too complex terms, making it simple. It doesn't mean hiding information or not telling what you're going to do, but making sure you keep it simple, you keep it short, concise, straight to the point, and you need to create that confidence in whatever you're doing because they know they're not going to go into the mobile and, and look at, look for any issues because they don't know how to do it. So you have to make them trust you. And that, for me, is the most difficult part of the job, or at least the one they enjoy the most, I'd say. But I'm not sure there's anything that sports is doing that's so much different than every industry. In Actually, in the other way is that we're trying to learn from lots of different industries that are way more advanced than us. But what I guess we might be doing differently is we have such a limited amount of headcount. We are so lean in organization, and that's across the whole industry, that we always have to be resourceful. And funny enough, if you're trying to find innovation in sports and more on the, on the team side, look for the team that don't have much money. They are the ones that are innovating way more. And not, not on anyone, but in, in baseball, it's the small market teams that find innovative ways to sell tickets. That is truly impressive from a data perspective than the big ones that actually don't have any trouble setting anyway. And they might still do some things, but the innovation usually comes from the underdog. And people usually sometimes will look for best practice. They look at the big guy in the market. I don't believe that's where you find the best practice in data. I just that's my perception. <laughs> I so agree with the last point. I mean, having the most reputable company or the team may not necessarily be the most innovative. Now, my final two questions, nothing related about the sports analytic or the F1, but it's more for you. Number one, what is your most important first principle? It's not from me yet. I actually don't remember where I heard it first. I think it was from a book or I heard someone talk about it. There's a saying or like a saying that I really like, which is actually three principles, kind of, is dream big, work hard, stay humble. And I really like it. And it's not from me. I'm sure if you Google, you're going to find who said it. I actually don't know. But I really not try to live by it because that's maybe too much. But I really embrace it. I think it's very important because especially we're talking about young people earlier. Some people, when you're young, you put barriers to your ambitions. I don't think there should be any. Most likely because they're afraid to be disappointed if they don't reach that goal. But I think there's personally, I don't think there's any harm in dreaming big, knowing that you might be disappointed because you may not have reached that goal. But I feel like you're always going to lend further than if you didn't dream as big. And the envelope part, I think, is very important because you also have, especially in my type of jobs, the survivorship bias. Because I've been one of the luckiest ones to make it into it, doesn't mean I'm the most talented. Doesn't mean I know better than anyone else. And I have, I have to remind myself this because it's a natural thing, but that I've been incredibly lucky. I need not to undermine this factor in my in my relative success in life. And I think that's what the end of the part means for me. So I think it's important because like people asking me, how did you make it? And I have to say, luck is the very biggest factor so far. And they have obviously other factors, but unfortunately, I think that counts in life as well. I love it. I think it's a fine line to walk, to stay humble. <laughs> and I know... From talking to so many people, I find that the one who make to the top, they are surprisingly humble. So I think you will, you will get that. Final question. What is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? Actually, it's about a topic we discussed, the behavioral science. So I'm not going to say thinking fast and slow because I think it's incredibly hard to read. But I would say The Undoing Project. 
which is the book by Michael Lewis, who's the same author as Moneyball. And so he's telling the story of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Versky, who are the founding fathers of behavioral science. And his writing is perfect. It's super easy to read, and it's been very simple terms. And it's how they really literally found the science from the, the mere principles that we believe humans are logical and rational when we're not. And they, that's the premise. And they started to understand why, in some cases, we're not rational. And that's the whole basis for behavioral science and understanding the cognitive biases and everything. And I think it's explained in the very simple terms. And I wish I've read it before, even though it wasn't published a long time ago. I think I, I bought that book when it, when it was published. But the whole thing about Dan Kahneman and his work, I think, is super interesting. And repeating myself, I do believe is extremely complementary to the data science skills or data analytics, all the related field. And I think professionals that can master a bit of both, I think it'll be in a very good position in life comes the next couple of years and decades. I so agree. At the end of the day, and all the problems that we are trying to solve from the data and analytic technology is to solve the problem for the human. And that human has got all this human behavior of whether they are rational or irrational that we must be able to understand in order to solve it. Thank you so much, Max. I want to tell you, I enjoyed this podcast interview so much. And thank you so much again for dialing in all the way from London. Thanks to the technology to make this podcast interview happen. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. 